I want to share with you today the story of two dads and their daughters. It's in the Gospel of Mark, it's chapter 5. It's a healing story, it's actually a resurrection story. Whenever you, you're reading in the Gospels and you come across healing stories or resurrection stories, it's not long before you find yourself asking, why not here? Why not now? Just want to name that that might be present inside of you. Uh, this is the story of two dads and their daughters. Uh, I, on the other hand, have four daughters. <laughs> and I would love to spend the rest of the morning telling you about the nuances of their beauty that leave even poets at a loss for words. <laughs> so I think I will. Uh, Mariah, she's, she's the nine-year-old. Uh, you've heard the phrase, is, are you here, Mariah? Uh-oh. <laughs> <laughs> Sweetness. Mariah is the nine-year-old. Uh, she, she goes by many nicknames. Uh, Rai Rai, Risey Lou, uh, Luzy Lou, Luya Girl. Uh, each of them indicative of the creativity of her person. Uh, she's the only one of my daughters who likes to watch sports with me. Uh, she's fallen in love with Michigan. Football and basketball. Last November, we went, I took her to the big house. First time in the big house to watch Michigan play Michigan State in football. And when I say play, I mean utterly annihilate <laughs> Michigan State. It was a beautiful day. Uh, it was cold. Uh, we were bundled up, sitting in the big house. Uh, at one point in the game, she took my arm. She put it around her shoulder. She sort of uh, rested herself on my chest. I said, oh, are you cold, sweetie? She said, no, I'm just having so much fun. <laughs> oh, man, your heart just sort of like... Uh, Ava, she's the three-year-old. Uh, she gets up every night in the middle of the night. This morning it was 3 a.m. Uh, crawls into our bed between Kristen and me. Like good parents would probably put some boundaries on that, but we're not. So <laughs> we just let her lay between us. A couple of weeks ago, she was dreaming and narrating her dream, like she was sleep-talking. And she said, uh, as I remember it, she said, uh, you're the best dad ever. <laughs> I'm just kidding. She didn't say that. <laughs> and then, of course, Tabitha, I might tell you something about her a little later on, and Lydia, the 14-year-old. Uh, well, I could go on. Um, but I want you to listen to the story of two dads and their daughters. It's from the Gospel of Mark. When Jesus had crossed again, so just back up, he was uh, in the region called the Decapolis, on the other side of the sea, the irreligious area. Remember the, uh, if you read earlier in Mark chapter 5, the healing of the demoniac man referred to himself as legion. Now they're heading back. Uh, when he had crossed again the sea on the boat. A large crowd gathered around him, and he was by the sea. A leader of the synagogue named Jairus came, 
And when he saw Jesus, he bowed down before him and begged him repeatedly, my little daughter is at the point of death. Come and lay your hands on her that she may be made well and live. So he went with him. The crowd followed him. They were pressing in on him. Now there was a woman suffering from hemorrhages for 12 years. She had suffered much under many physicians and had spent all that she had and wasn't getting any better, but rather growing worse. She heard about Jesus. So uh, she came up behind him and touched his clothes. She said, if I but touch his cloak, I will be made well. Immediately, the hemorrhages stopped and she could feel in her body that she was healed of the disease. Immediately, aware that power had gone forth from him, Jesus began to look around the crowd to see who it was that touched him. The disciples said, look, the crowd's pressing in on you. How can you say who touched my clothes? But Jesus continued to look about, wondering who had done it. The woman, knowing what had happened to her, came in fear and trembling and bowed before him and told him the whole truth. And Jesus said, daughter, your faith has made you well. Go in peace and be healed of the disease. While he was still speaking, people came from the leader's house and said, your daughter... is dead. Why bother the teacher any further? Jesus, overhearing what they said, said to the leader of the synagogue, do not fear, but believe. And he took with him Peter and James and John, the brother of James, and they went to the house of the leader of the synagogue. There was a great commotion, people weeping and wailing loudly. He said, why such a commotion and weeping? The child is not dead, but sleeping. And they laughed at him. He put them out. He took with him the, father's, uh, the child's father, and mother and those who were with him, and they went into the room where the child was, and he took her by the hand, and he said to her, Talifakum, which means little girl, get up. Immediately, she got up and began to walk around. The girl was 12 years of age. When they saw it, they were overcome with amazement and he strictly ordered them not to let this be known. And he told them to get her something to eat. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. It's Mark chapter 5, verses 21 through 43, if you want to find it on a Bible app with you or in, a, in an actual Bible uh, near you. It's the story of two dads and their daughters.
We'll, we'll get to the, the nuances of the story, but there's three phrases that Mark uses that seem to me superfluous to the story, that you just don't need them. Uh, they, they, don't, they don't move along the plot line whatsoever, and yet Mark includes them, and I just want to kind of notice them together. Is that okay? And then we'll get to the story of the two dads and their daughters. The first line Mark uses that is unnecessary is in verse 21, and he was by the sea. The second one is in verse 40, and they laughed at him. The third line is in verse 42, she was 12 years of age. So Mark is the shortest of all the Gospels. He's kind of in a hurry. You've got Matthew's 28 chapters, Luke is 24 chapters, John is 21 chapters, and Mark is 16 chapters. He, he uses the word immediately more than any other word in the entire Gospel. Immediately. In this story alone, three times. He's in a hurry. He wants to get to the bigger stuff, the better stuff, the saving stuff. Let's get on with it. And yet has time to include, first, and he was by the sea. Well, of course he was by the sea. He had just crossed over the sea on a boat and had gotten out of the boat and a crowd's pressing in on him. Where else would he be? Mark, this is redundant, Mark. You, you who are so economical with your words are now flattering us with details? I don't think so. When we hear the word sea, we think like vacation. Swimming and tubing and skiing and sunsets. When, they heard, when the first century heard the word sea, they thought chaos. They thought confusion. They thought danger, evil, actually demonic. Some went so far as to say the gateway to the eternal abyss was the sea. And here Jesus is announcing the kingdom, healing diseases, and he was by the sea. Danger lurks. Confusion reigns. Evil is close at hand. I think Mark wants us to know, even as Jesus is announcing the rule, reign, and kingdom of God, so evil is close at hand. And I'm offering it now to suggest the same. If you think you're making your way through some sort of neutrally ordered world, think again. There are forces vying for your affection. There are powers alluring you with their delights. This is not a neutrally ordered world. Keep awake. Stay awake. Are you with me? That's the first line Mark offers that I think is superfluous. Now, here's the second one. It's verse 40. And they laughed at him. Would you dare? They laughed at him. The announcement that the child's only sleeping, not dead, is laughable. Jesus is announcing an impossibility. Uh, any, any, anyone remember a different story in the Bible where someone was caught laughing? Sarah and her husband Abraham. Read Genesis. They both laughed at different times. The, the announcement of the promise was so grand, so glorious, the only thing they could do was laugh. And here we are again, and they laughed at him. What I want to suggest is the gospel of Christ is so counter to reality as it is, it's actually laughable. The rule and reign of God in the world is actually at odds with every other rule and reign. 
It's laughable to think that a man, a God-man, would enter, would leave the, the, the eternal realities of the Trinity and enter into the limited realities of creatureliness, die on the cross to bring life. That's laughable. Who would go to the grave to defeat death, that's laughable. Who would rise up again in resurrection to overcome sin and death, that's laughable. So that one day there would be peace on earth. Lion and lamb would lie down together and you'd be free from the past you can't change, open to an eternal future in which you will forever be changed into the image of Jesus Christ. That is laughable. And it's true. If you think you're going to pursue faithfulness to the gospel in the world and everyone's going to applaud, you have something else coming. One of the things that stuns me about the Christian church is our insatiable need to be relevant. Have you noticed this about us? So worried that we might lose relevance. Well, of course we will. It's laughable. Maybe watering down the Christian faith so that it's palatable to some taste is not in the best interest of the kingdom and the gospel. They laughed at him. Well, of course they did. And they'll laugh at you too. And depending on where you are in the world, much, much worse. Uh, got an email from one of you this week. A quote from a book titled Resident Aliens. Just the title of the book is worth its price. The church doesn't have a social strategy. The church is a strategy. I love that. The confessing church seeks the visible church, a place clearly visible to the world in which people are faithful to their promises, love their enemies, tell the truth, honor the poor, suffer for righteousness, and thereby testify to the amazing community-creating power of God. The church knows that its most credible form of witness and the most effective thing it can do for the world is the actual creation of a living, breathing, visible community of faith. Be the church. Karl Barth says the same thing. Christianity, theology, he calls it, has for so long given itself to the throne room of the sciences. Bart says, no, be the church. Be the community we say we are. And they laughed at him. I will get to the third phrase um, that I think is superfluous in a minute, but I just really want to get to the story of the dads and their daughters. The first story, so this is called a Markin sandwich. Uh, Mark starts telling a story, then interrupts himself to tell a different story before returning to the original story. He does it all the time. It's actually a literary form called a Markin sandwich, and he does it so that each story would help us understand the other. That's what's going on. All right, are we good? You good? You can, you can dazzle your friends now. <laughs> Lunch tomorrow. Oh, let me tell you about the Markin sandwich. The first story is about a, the leader of the synagogue. His name is Jairus. You can feel your way into the story, can't you? My little daughter, he says. Jairus would have had available to him all of the resources of religion. He's breaking ranks. Jesus is not the one you go to if you're a, religious, a Jewish religious leader. He's the one you point at. 
scoff at, hold in suspicion. But Jairus has done everything that he could do within the religious system, and it didn't work. He breaks ranks. He falls at the feet of Jesus, begs him repeatedly. That's what it says. He begged him repeatedly. My little daughter. We find out later she's 12. My little girl. You can feel it, can't you? Feel for when. Uh, so my daughter Tabitha turned 12 on Thursday. So I'm like feeling this story on a whole new kind of level. When she was about seven or eight, she was diagnosed with an autoimmune disease. Have I mentioned this? At first it started out as pain in her knees and ankles. A couple days later, there were like these sort of blood blister-like rashes on her feet. Started to climb her legs and then up her back. Doctors here sent us to Children's Hospital up in Grand Rapids. It was a, the disease was wreaking havoc on her kidneys. So a bunch, bunch of drugs they gave her, but then ultimately needed to see what was going on with the kidneys, so they had a little procedure, a little surgery they did. Kristen and I were in the OR with her, and then we had to leave after she was anesthetized. That is the longest, worst walk of a parent's life. So we're, uh, we're walking out of the OR. We go to the waiting room crying. Um, we had been prepping her for this drug they were going to give her called propofol. It's the one that was going to put her to sleep. Uh, but be, the way the, the disease was working, her, her veins were like collapsing. So they'd get the IV in and then her vein would collapse. So poking her, poking her, poking her. Finally, they said, we've got to give her some, uh, some laughing gas so that she won't feel the pain. So they give her the laughing gas and her, you know, she's doing one of these and... Kind of can't see. Finally, they got the IV in her ankle. I said, all right, Tabby, uh, they, they're going to give you the propofol now. And her eyes fixated on me. She reached out her hand like this. I love you guys. <laughs> and then we walked away. Told us it would be about 45 minutes. After about an hour and 15, we are a weeping mess. Jairus falls before Jesus, my little daughter. You can feel it, can't you? As a way of helping us understand the second story, the woman hemorrhaging for 12 years. So first of all, I'm sorry I have to put it this way, but women uh, were just on a lower social status. Like they were more like property than people. Maybe useful for a few things, but otherwise just hey, stay quiet and out of the way, Okay. Um, not just that she was a woman, but now also she's a diseased woman, bleeding, unclean. That's what that meant. Like, stay away. Get away. You're gross. That's what's going on. She's the ostracized. She's the disenfranchised. She's, you know, remember the other story where the four guys bring the man in, the paralyzed man, and cut the hole in the house? Where's her people? She thinks she, there's enough of a commotion. She kind of slips up behind Jesus. She grabs his coat, which is actually a reference to Malachi. There's healing in his wings. She touches his coat, and immediately the hemorrhages go away, and she feels in her body that she's healed of the disease. Jesus 
immediately, again, Mark in a hurry, immediately aware that power has gone forth from him, starts to look around. Who did it? Who touched me? The disciples laugh at him. Come on, look at the crowd. How can you find one person? Jesus is unrelenting. He's looking for the one. The masses, the crowds, they're sort of in the way. He wants the one. Doesn't that sound like the gospel? The lost sheep, the lost coin, the prodigal son. Jesus is after the one. She comes to him in fear and trembling, knowing who she was in the social system of things. She comes to him in fear and trembling. And you know what he says to her? Daughter. My little girl. Precious, tender, beautiful. I love you. The story of Jairus' daughter, you can feel the 12-year-old in order to understand how Jesus sees this woman. I don't know what you think of you and what past you have sitting on your shoulder speaking into you all of the time, telling you half-truths and lies about who you are. Jesus sees you and says, daughter, child, precious, I love you. Jesus is willing to look around, look past, look over the masses, the crowds, the numbers in order to find the one, you. And then there's this line, she was 12 years of age. Why? The girl has just been raised from the dead and Mark wants to tell us how old she is. Who cares? Truly. Even in my Bible, it's parenthetical. Even the, the editors knew it was sort of a throwaway line. She's 12 years old. I don't know why, Mark. Which is interesting because the woman's been suffering from hemorrhages for 12 years. Also a detail we don't need to know. How long? Who cares? Just she was sick. The Bible is kind of particular about numbers. Have you noticed this along the way? They're not throwaway lines. Three, seven, twelve. Twelve is completion. Twelve is wholeness. Twelve is fullness. Is Mark, I'm wondering, is Mark suggesting to us the religious leader, the leader of the synagogue, who had exhausted all of the religious resources, has come to the end? My little daughter... Jesus is the fullness, the completion, the heal, he's the, the saving one for Israel. And then the woman, hemorrhaging for 12 years, the ostracized, the disenfranchised, the sick, the gross, he's also the healing, saving one for her. It's not just the 12 tribes of Israel, it's the people of God in the world. Fullness, wholeness. At a certain point, you, you, you have to, you, you, will, you will, it happens to all of us eventually, you, you, you come to the end of your resources. The religious man had run, had exhausted the religious system, it didn't work, so he's begging Jesus. The woman had suffered much and her many physicians had spent all that she had, it didn't work. So she sneaks up behind Jesus at a certain point, all of the things we rely on and hold on to fall away as unhelpful and we find ourselves at the feet of the only one who can do anything about it. Jesus, fullness, wholeness, completion. Uh, one week ago today, about this time, uh, Kobe Bryant 
You've heard of that, that story. Came home from church, and first you hear it, and you're like, no, that, that can't be true. And then the more sources keep telling the story. Kobe and his 13-year-old daughter, 41 years old, 13. It just breaks your heart. And, and our country for sure, but really the world was sort of sent kind of spiraling, trying to figure out how to grieve, how to be sad. This tragedy can't happen. Not Kobe. He's like bigger than life. I mean, that's what we think. So on Friday night, the Lakers had postponed all of their games. They played their first game since Kobe's death on Friday night, and they paid tribute to Kobe before the game. Anybody see this? Um, on a sociological level, it was fascinating. A grieving world having no idea how to grieve. I'd love to spend some time with some of you to think through the, just the sociological realities. And then on, just on, on an emotional level, it just rips your heart out. Uh, so the, the tribute begins with a guy named Usher. I, I googled him. Uh, I'm guessing he had been invited to sing Amazing Grace. Um, and and uh, as he's singing, he kind of, he starts like riffing. He, he starts doing his own thing. He kind of changes the lyric. You know Amazing Grace. He starts singing his own kind of version of it. And it might have been the most honest moment in the entire tribute. Uh, Ben's going to play a little bit of it for you. This is Usher. I thank you, Lord. Oh, I thank you for your amazing grace. Said we need you right now. Oh, oh, any man, woman, and child right now, oh, just in your grace. Said we need you, Lord. We need you. We need you right now. A certain point. You just run out of options. We need you now. We need you now. We need you now. The religious man had run out of options. The hemorrhaging woman had to. The only place is to fall before the feet of Jesus. Amen?